Well, good morning. Hey, this is a good morning, and uh, we're going to throw that title slide up there momentarily. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Okay, so one of the things that I love about preaching through the Bible is um, when you just go through books and you just start in one spot and go to the next. There we go. We got it up there. Um, that's to help you remember to, to how to find the passage or where it is. So one of the cool things about preaching through the Bible is, you know, sometimes we have things that we're personally passionate about that we want to talk about. But when you're going through the Bible, you don't just preach on the things that matter to you. Um, there are also times that if you're preaching through the Bible that, that you may run across something that you don't want to preach on or don't feel like preaching on. But when you're going through the Bible, you can't just skip stuff. And so we end up learning all the things that God wants us to learn. Now, our title this morning is A Heart for the Gospel. But do you want to know what another title could have been? It could have been Five Reasons You Should Pay Your Pastor. <laughs> you know, so when I'm looking at this passage, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, man, we should have invited a guest speaker for this morning. Um, so that is actually, I would say, like one of the main points of chapter 9 is that we should pay the people who minister to us. But there's a bigger picture going on here, and I think that there are some really powerful lessons for all of us to learn, and we are not going to skip the lessons that God has put in there. But when you think about this context, um, I want to just kind of lay out how we end up here and why Paul is talking about how the Corinthians should be willing to support him. But one of the things that he's going to say is, you should be willing to support me, you should support me, but I actually won't take any money from you. And so he actually refuses to allow them to support him. And we're going to think about how does that all factor in? How does this impact us? So here's the situation in Corinth. And we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that's really awesome is that this Corinthian church, uh, they, many people say that the Corinthian church was a thorn in the, in the Apostle Paul's side. And he probably really loved the Philippian church. They were so encouraging and welcoming, and they just blessed him. And he probably was really frustrated with the Corinthian church because all they did was complain and attack him and attack his motives. And they were fighting with each other and fighting with him. And actually, the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul spends three chapters defending himself from the accusations of the Corinthian church. And I actually, as I think about that, like I've heard that in seminary, I've read that in books about 1 Corinthians, but I actually don't think that's true, that Paul felt like the Corinthian church. I mean, certainly they were a thorn in his side to some degree, but I think he loved them. I think he was so thankful for them. When you think about Corinth, it was the most wicked city that you could, like if you're making a list of terrible places where people were just living in debauchery and sinfulness, that was the Corinthian church. There was no problem, no sin problem that we see in our culture or that we have seen personally or that we have experienced that was not significant in the Corinthian church. Often we'll think, oh man, you know, in Bible times things were so much better, but today things are terrible. That's actually not true. There's no sin that we struggle with today that people have not struggled with 
throughout history. And Paul goes to Corinth and he preaches and people get saved and their lives are transformed. And I think the Apostle Paul thought about the Corinthian church and he was excited about what God was doing. He loved them and he loved what God was doing in their midst. But he goes to work correcting the sin things going on in the church, which is not a surprise. I'm sure there's nothing that happened that surprised the Apostle Paul. And so I want to read our passage. Basically, Paul's been talking about conflict and unity, and then he's talked about the transformation of the gospel in chapter 6, sexual purity, marriage. He's talking about how everything in marriage actually goes through the lens of the gospel. Like, we don't get divorced uh, when we're married to unbelievers, partly because we want to see God save them, even if our marriage is challenging. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which we dealt with last week, he's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols and just talking about how do we wrestle through these gray areas of life where something's not sinful for me to do, but if I do it, it harms someone else. And so Paul just says, don't do anything that destroys a brother or sister in Christ in last week. And then this week, Paul's going to talk about how I have rights as an apostle. But I'm going to set those to the side because I'm not actually willing for anything in my life to be a hindrance to the gospel. And so as you think about this passage, we're going to go through it. But one of the things that you should think about is that the priority in your life, the priority in everything that you do is related to the gospel. And that is that God has saved us. He has redeemed us, not because we're good, but because Jesus has died for us and because God loved us and he's made a way for us to be saved. And so we live out that salvation by number one, worshiping and obeying God. And number two, pursuing the salvation and the spiritual blessing in lives of the people that God has put around us. Those are our priorities. Okay, you ready to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9? We're not going to do the whole chapter, but just 1 through 15. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not all have a right to eat and drink? Do we not all have a right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses that you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should not plow, um, the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher uh, thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 
If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? And then here's like Paul's theme statement. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their fruit from the temple? And those who serve at the altar in the, in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So Paul, and, and we'll come back to that at the end, he just says, man, my purpose is to love and to serve the Lord. Like that's his ground for boasting, that he's going to do what God has called him to do. He's like, I would rather die than give up my single purpose of pleasing the Lord. And so next week, uh, we will actually go through the priority of the gospel. But let's jump into this. Um, you know, uh, the, the first point is this, a heart for the gospel is demonstrated in who we encourage. So another way to phrase this is we could, we could label this point, Paul defends himself. But if we take a step back and we think about what is going on here, this church that Paul loves, that Paul sacrificed to serve and to care for, is full of people who are criticizing him, who are attacking him, who are attacking his motives. And so Paul defends himself. But one of the things that you and I should do as we read passages like this is we should think about, okay, historically what's happening, but, but what's the application for me? How does this apply to me? And one of the things I would say is that a heart for the gospel is demonstrated in who we encourage. When you look at this uh, verse 1, am I not free? You know, the Corinthians were concerned with their freedom. Hey, I want to exercise my freedom. I want to be able to do the things I can do. And the apostle Paul just says, yeah, I care about freedom too. But it's not my number one concern. My number one concern is pleasing the Lord. And for you, your number one concern should be pleasing the Lord. We can see what they were criticizing Paul about by how he defends himself. So one of the things that they're accusing him of is not being a real apostle. Now, when you think about the apostles, um, Judas needed to be replaced. And when they sat down to say, okay, who can we replace Judas with? There were some measures that needed to happen. It was who, who was involved in Jesus' ministry with him? Who was somebody who saw the resurrected Christ? And so, like, there were these requirements for being an apostle. There are some people who today would want to claim to be apostles in the same way that the, the disciples were apostles or, the, the, or that Paul was an apostle. And I'll just tell you, there is nobody living today that is an apostle in the same sense as the apostle Paul. Um, but the apostle Paul, he did see the resurrected Christ, right? That's actually when he got saved on the road to Damascus. Um, Jesus showed himself to him. And so they're saying he's not a real apostle. He wasn't with that group. And, and the apostle Paul says, oh, I'm least of the apostles. He refers to himself that way. But he's saying, no, I am an apostle. And he says, the proof is that I have seen Jesus. And then he says to, the, to this church, and you should know it because your proof that God has sent me and is working through me, this church is there. 
because the Apostle Paul preached to them, because God worked powerfully through his ministry. And that's one of the super sad things when you think about what's happening here. The very people that were close to Paul, that should have known Paul, that should have been able to see through false accusations toward Paul, didn't. And some of them were convinced and joined in that attack. Um, that's what he says in verse 2. If, others, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my, of my apostleship in the Lord. And then he says, this is my defense, and then he's going to go on and defend himself. You know, um, the, the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, they, they used to say about Paul, and we're going to see him defend himself about this, you're only in this for what you can get. It's your ego. You have a desire to get money. Like, they specifically accused him of that. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in Christ, we speak. So the Apostle Paul says, man, I don't do what I do for money. There's a lot of people who do that. My concern is to please God and to speak in Christ. Um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, uh, they also accused him of this. They said this, for, the, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And uh, so they just say, Paul, he doesn't speak that well. The things he say, they don't really matter. He's so tough when he's writing letters to the church, but in person he's weak and unimpressive. I mean, these are like the kinds of uh, things that people are saying. So when, when, when they say about Paul, he's only interested in money. Um, you guys, uh, if, you, if you think about Acts chapter 18, I want to read this passage. Paul never took money from the Corinthian church. And he didn't do it, be, not because they shouldn't have paid him, but because that would be a hindrance or a stumbling block to the gospel. He knew the kinds of things that they would accuse him of. And so this is what you find in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. And we can put that up on the screen. Um, Acts 18, verse 1 says this, After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Have you ever heard of people in ministry or missionaries, and they call them tent makers? So a tent maker would be somebody who says, hey, I want to be a missionary, so I'm going to go to another country, and I'm just going to get a job, and nobody's going to support me. I'm just going to earn, earn a living, and then while I'm there, I'll do ministry. So a tent maker is somebody who supports themselves. This is where that passage, this is where that concept comes from, is Paul was making tents. And it says in verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul is working all week long, and on the Sabbath, he goes and does ministry. And it says that that was his practice. Why? Because the Corinthian church wasn't paying him, and he wouldn't take money from them. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, that's where the Philippian church was, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So first he's working 
and ministering on Saturday, but as soon as they arrive from Macedonia, he quits working and he devotes all of his time to ministry. So Paul did take money from ministry for, to do ministry. He just didn't take it from the Corinthians. He worked when he was around the Corinthians, but he allowed the Philippian church to support him not only when he was working in Philippi, but when he was working in other places. In fact, in Philippians 4.15, Paul comments about this. He says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. And so he talks about the support of the Philippian church. So here's the issue. Um, did Paul go to Corinth and try to get money out of them? I mean, he didn't, right? This is so obvious. Anybody could have looked at that and seen it. And yet, he has to defend himself from the very people who should have known the truth but what they saw from their own eyes. When you think about this is actually Satan's plan. Have you guys ever heard of um, that passage in Ephesians where it says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, demonic forces and against Satan? Like whenever there's conflict and discord in the church, when you're having conflicts with a friend of yours, when you see conflicts that are happening in the church, that's not something that flows out of the spirit. That's something that flows from Satan's work in the church. Uh, do you know how Satan manipulates people? You know how he gets them to do what he wants? It's always through sin. See, that's the blessing, is that Satan's plans have not changed. And if as believers we honor the Lord and we obey what God says, we will not be pawns in Satan's hands. So the Apostle Paul, as he addresses this, um, we can just think about what should the Corinthian church have been like. They should have encouraged and supported. And I would just say this, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers, one of the most significant things that we do in the church and as believers is that we love and we support fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't fight. We are not against other people. We are for people. We encourage people. And especially when we see people who are serving, we come alongside, we encourage, and we support. You know, you think about uh, when Satan attacked Job. He destroys everything. And I heard this one comedian say, you know, he kills Job's kids. He destroys all these things. But he never killed Job's wife. He left his wife. He's like, okay, I really want to really destroy Job. I want to harm him, so I'm going to take away everything he loves, but I'm not taking away his wife. <laughs> and uh, I think when you read the book of Job, you know why. Um, Satan wants Job's wife there, who, by the way, we should be compassionate, soft-hearted toward her because she lost her kids too. But does she speak to Job to be an encouragement to him when he's going through these trials? Do you remember what she says? She looks at Job and she says, why are you trying to maintain your integrity? Just curse God and die. Um, Satan wants Job's wife there to attack him and to discourage him in the midst of what he's doing, trying to, trying to honor the Lord in his life. Do not ever be a person who allows themselves to be manipulated by Satan to attack other people. Um, we don't do that. 
And, um, you know, when you think about this, I was just thinking about, um, you know, Peter and Barnabas, you know, that they struggled with that. It's not just evil people who get wrapped up in those kind of conflicts. Um, so Peter is in, in Galatians. These Jewish people come. They're prideful. They're judgmental. They're harsh. And Peter's hanging out with all the Gentiles. And when these prideful, judgmental people show up, Peter's like, oh, man, I don't want them to be prideful and judgmental toward me. So you want to know what Peter does? He joins them in mistreating other people in the church. I mean, this is the apostle Peter. And not just Peter, it actually says, it, this was so bad in Galatians chapter 2, even Barnabas got caught up into it. You know who Barnabas was? So Barnabas is this Levite, and often people don't realize this, but in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas sells his property and gives it to the apostles and says, here, care for poor people. Um, Barnabas was an encouraging, spiritually faithful person. Um, he was known as a son of encouragement. And Peter got caught up in this, and Barnabas got caught up in this and started participating. Have you guys ever seen those kinds of things happen in churches where there's conflict, there's division, where one person starts attacking somebody else? Man, that can happen. And if we're not careful... We can get caught up into that. Uh, what does 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 12 say? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Um, you know, I think about uh, how did Paul address this? Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul just says, man, when I'm reviled, I don't attack. When people are, 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 are unfair, unjust toward me, I return good for evil. And this is what he tells Timothy. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.24, this is what Paul tells Timothy about people in, the, in that church that are creating issues. He says this to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, being held captive by him to do his will. You know, that's the challenging thing. Like in, in our families, sometimes we can have conflicts. And uh, you, you can have a conflict with your spouse. You can have a conflict with your kids. The, one of the huge tragedies is I've seen families that, um, that these families are made up of a variety of people. And what's so sad is sometimes you'll have unbelieving parents and two believing kids. And one of the things that will happen is in this family, instead of everybody in a unified way pursuing the salvation of these kids, pursuing the salvation of their parents. You want to know what happens sometimes? The believing kids start having a conflict and start fighting with each other. You ever seen that? Uh, jealousy, anger, bitterness, the, the kinds of things that Satan will use to drive a wedge between siblings. And what happens when that happens? Instead of those siblings being a good testimony, you have these two unbelieving parents looking at their kids 
and they're just going, man, <laughs> the Christian kids are fighting with each other, don't want to see each other, don't want to be around each other. Let me just ask you something. Is that a good testimony for those unbelieving parents? And, and, and one of the things I want to throw out there, hey, we can all struggle with these kind of things. That's what Satan was doing in the Corinthian church. They were fighting with each other. Then they started fighting with Paul. And what did they do? When that happens, they failed to focus on the things that God has called them to focus on. So here's the second point. We don't want to get caught up in that. Second thing is this. A heart for the gospel is demonstrated by who we support. And there's going to be five reasons here that we should support people in ministry. And this is the <laughs> really nice thing. This church is awesome. And uh, that is not something I have ever, like this is not a weakness in this church. This church is so generous. This church is, church is generous to everybody who works here. This church is generous. When we have missionaries come in, one of the things I just love about this church is we'll have a missionary come and speak and talk about their needs. And everybody's like saying, hey, what are you going to do? How can I get involved in helping and caring? And so it's really nice for me, you know, as I teach on this, I'm not teaching on it from any sense of lack in my own life. This church is generous and has a long history of generosity. But this is important for each of us to think about. How do we think about ministry? How do we think about supporting people? Here's 1 Corinthians 9, 3. Uh, the apostle says this. Uh, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not all have the right to eat and drink? Do we not all have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. So Paul just says, you know, you talk about whether or not I should be paid. He's like, you're saying I'm in this for greed and all that stuff. He's like, you don't even pay me, but you should pay me. Hey, the church supports these other ministers, including their whole family, supports them, supports their wife. They take along this believing wife. And Paul's just saying, hey, are we the only two that, that should be working? What about everybody else? The whole church is being supported. The, the ministers are supported. Um, it's a common practice. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Could you imagine, like, somebody's, you know, out in a field picking oranges, and if they get, it's like they're picking all these boxes of oranges, but they couldn't grab one of those and eat it while they're working? Um, he's just saying, man, this just doesn't make any sense. Um, the, the, uh, the third reason is that it's the right application of the Old Testament law. And so we don't wanna rip this passage out, but we wanna think about how is Paul using the Old Testament law here? So he just goes on, he says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? So Paul's gonna say, God has actually instructed us to think in this way. And then he cites this, um, this passage about muzzling the ox. So if you were a Jew and you were uh, having your ox work in the field, um, can we throw up that picture of the cows? So this is a picture of, uh, so this, this, by the way, <laughs> I put this one up here. You'll notice that there's a cow and a donkey. And you'll also notice that both the cow and donkey have muzzles on. So this is actually a picture from around the 1900s of Jews in Israel. And in this pic picture, they're breaking all the rules. 
because you were not allowed, Jews were not allowed to put a cow and a donkey um, under the same yoke. They, animals had to be equally yoked. Two cows, two oxen. And the reason is that different animals are different. They, they have different needs. They, they work differently. They have different heights and just various things. And so one of the things that God said in the Old Testament is you are not allowed to unequally yoke. But Paul actually uses that as an illustration for the church where he says as a believer, you are not to marry an unbeliever. That is being unequally yoked. And so there was this law about animals, but it had larger application. Show the next one. Okay, so there you got the two cows. Those are equally yoked, but again... They're threshing, and they put muzzles on them so that they wouldn't eat. And Jews were actually not allowed to do that. And, and that was a principle. And this is one of the things that's important for us to understand. As we read through the Old Testament, as Christians, we need to understand big picture the things that are said in the Old Testament. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that apply to us today. They help us understand God. They help us understand how God thinks. But also... We shouldn't just know the big picture. We should spend time dwelling on individual things. Here's what Paul says here about this. When God wrote this law about not muzzling ox, oxes, was he mainly concerned about the oxen? And Paul says, no. That was not ultimately written for the oxes. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you can muzzle your ox. Like God told Jews, don't muzzle the ox. And guess what they were not supposed to do? Muzzle their ox. So we don't take something that God says and just disregard it and say, oh, but it has a deeper meaning. No. We obey everything that God tells us. And we today are not under the Old Testament law. So if you had some oxes in your field, which <laughs> you probably have a field, but if you did, you would not be breaking the Old Testament law by muzzling your ox the way the Jews would have. But you know what? As a believer, you should take a step back and you should be dwelling on this and thinking about it and saying to yourself, why did God say that about oxen? And I want to think about oxes the way God tells me to think about oxes, but also I want to think about life the way God wants me to think about life. And so Paul's saying is that this Old Testament law about oxen, you were supposed to make an extrapolation and learn how to think about life from that. And you should be thinking to yourself, if an animal has a right to eat from its labor, certainly people should have a right to eat from their labor. So if as a Christian you owned a, an orange farm or, you know, or, an orange orchard, <laughs> um, if you owned an orange orchard and as a believer, if you said to your workers, you're not allowed to eat an orange while you're picking the trees. Like as a believer, you should think about if animals are allowed to eat from their labor, people should be also. And believers who own orchards should be generous and they shouldn't tell their workers that they can't eat oranges while they're, while they're picking the oranges. We're supposed to make extrapolations from these things. You know, I'll tell you, there's a few other things. Uh, by the way, I just wanna throw it out there. God doesn't not care about animals. Um, Proverbs says that a righteous man cares about the needs of his animals. So Paul's not saying God doesn't care about animals. Um, also, do you remember when Jonah was mad that God didn't destroy Nineveh? Do you remember the reasons that God gave for not destroying Nineveh? 
One is he says, in Nineveh, there's lots of kids. Shouldn't I care about kids? I mean, sure, it's a wicked nation, but they got lots of kids too. Shouldn't I be compassionate toward children? And did you know what else he said in that thing? He says, and many animals. God's saying, shouldn't I be compassionate toward kids? And shouldn't I be compassionate toward animals? So as believers, we should care about animals. But you want to know what God is communicating? Part of what he's communicating here is that animals and people are not in the same category. Um, yes, God loves animals, but people are more valuable than animals. And, and you have all kinds of environmental struggles where people are like, oh, man, you can't build houses or you can't do this. It'll disturb this lizard. And as believers, it's not that we don't care about God's creation, but you want to know what we think about as believers? If a person needs a house, we can disturb the lizards because a lizard's house is less important than a person's house. And so we realize that people are far more valuable than animals. It's like when that gorilla, some little baby, fell into a gorilla cage, and they ended up shooting the gorilla because they're like, man, this gorilla might tear this kid apart before we can save the kid. And just the outcry of people saying, how dare you kill the gorilla? Um, one of the things that God expects us to understand is that people and animals are in a different category. But it's not that God doesn't care about the animals. And so, um, you know, you think about a bunch of things in the Old Testament law that may have application to us. You know, here's one in Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, you shall make a paraphet or put up a guardrail for your roof that you might not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So he's just saying, hey, look, when you're, building, when you're building a porch that somebody might fall off and hurt themselves, you need to put up a fence because you need to care about people when you're doing things. Um, hey, that has application in our current laws, doesn't it? How about this? Um, Exodus 21, 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay, so somebody has a dog, and that dog goes and bites somebody and hurts them. You want to know what should happen? That dog should be put to sleep. But we don't punish the owner for something that huh, they didn't know was going to happen. So just in the sense of liability. But listen to what it goes on and says. Verse 29, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore, in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death you want to know what the application of that is your dog bites somebody you put that dog to sleep but if that dog bites somebody and you know it's a dangerous animal and then that animal gets out later and kills somebody else's kid you should be put to death now, those are not our laws currently, and, and I'm not saying that we should go and personally enforce those things. <laughs> but when we read the Old Testament and we learn about how God thinks about things, that is supposed to inform how we approach things and how we think about things. So the Old Testament, we should know it uh, you know, uh, in, in a big picture, but we should also dwell on the little things in it. Um, here's another reason that he gives in verse 13 for uh, supporting people in ministry. 
Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and that those who share um, the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So in the Old Testament, um, did you know that, that everybody had an inheritance? God gave um, every tribe and every family, he gave them a certain plot of land, and they had, that, they had that as an inheritance. They weren't allowed to sell it. If they did give it to somebody or, in a sense, sell it to somebody, at the end of seven years, that had to go back to their family. So God gave them this permanent inheritance. You want to know who did not have an inheritance in Israel? The Levites, the priests. They actually had nothing. They didn't have a retirement. God didn't give them land. Do you know what God's plan for their retirement was? It was the sacrificial system. It was as people bring a tenth of all their goods into the temple. They're going to bring this tenth in. But guess who lived on that tenth? All the Levites. Uh, The offerings, people would come make an offering. And who ate that food? The the Levites ate it. And in fact, in... uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 1, it says, The Levitical priests and the, tribes of, the tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They will eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. And one of the tragedies in the nation of Israel was when priests abandoned being priests because people stopped giving. They stopped making sacrifices. And so you have these people that are supposed to be serving God, but if they did, they'd starve to death. So that was one of the things, looking at Israel. It's like, you guys have fallen so far from where God intends you to be. Look at all the priests. They have to go get other jobs. They're not doing the things that God has called them to do because you're not supporting them. And then the the last reason that Paul gives here is he says, in the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, so I had a question for you. All you Bible scholars, you Bible readers out there. Where did Jesus command that people who are proclaiming the gospel should get their living from the gospel? Can you, can you think of where that is, anybody? You don't have to yell it out. Okay. Do you remember when Jesus gets his disciples together and he sends them out? And he tells them to go share the gospel. It's actually in Matthew chapter 10 is one of those places. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, um, Jesus just says, And proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And then look what he says here. This is really important. You received without paying. Give without pay. So, Paul's telling ministers, you receive without paying, so give without pay. You know what he's saying? It is your job to go preach the gospel. It is your job to go give things. You know, as you think about people in ministry, <laughs> one of the things, there was this one, this one preacher, incredibly famous, like masses of people wanted to hear his sermons. And, um, I mean, it was like probably, a, you know, over a million people just on a regular basis listening to his sermons. And when he was uh, making those things available, he never charged anything personally for those sermons. He, he, if somebody wanted a tape, he would give it to them for the cost of the tape. If they couldn't afford it, he would donate it to them. Say, if you can't afford it, I'll just send it to you. Uh, I've gotten letters from this pastor. 
and he's written a bunch of books. And every time he sends a letter, it's like he sends out these letters to people. And it's always you can give a donation for this book if you want it. Or um, just if you want it for free, just check here. I'll send it to you for free. Did he have a right to sell his sermon tapes? Yep. Have a right to sell his books? Do authors have a right to make money from their writing? Yes. But he just says, I'm not going to sell the gospel because somebody um, hearing God's word is something that I would pay for them to be able to hear God's word. Let alone what I say, you can only have the gospel unless you give me money. And so that's like, by the way, the heart and attitude people should have. I've known other people in ministry who, on very simple things, it's like you got to pay for everything. And again, it's not wrong to pay people for things. But sometimes it seems like more people are more concerned with getting money for what they do than for blessing people through their ministry. And just by the way, we should never hire or support people in ministry if they are driven and motivated by money. When you see a need, uh, do you want to meet this need? Will you go uh, speak here? There's a person who needs this. Well, how much? How much can they pay? Okay, you can't pay me. I'm not coming. Um, those personally, um, I get the logistics of all those things. And again, it is not wrong for people to charge, but people should be happy. Um, I think about that in the sense of um, pastors or ministers doing weddings or funerals. And especially somebody passes away and they're like, man, I really need somebody to do a funeral. Well, okay, it's going to cost this much. Or do you just say, no, um, I'm supported by God's family. Somebody passes away, I'll happily do that for free. And sometimes you just sense that attitude in some people that they care more about what they get than, what, than the opportunity to give. So Jesus here just says, man, give generously to everybody. But then he goes on in verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. When Jesus sends them out, he says, don't store up money, don't plan to support yourself, just go do ministry. I don't charge anybody for anything, just go do ministry. Verse 11, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So Jesus tells his disciples, go and stay in a house and let the person that lets you stay there, let them financially support you. Let them feed you. In Luke, he says, don't try to spread out the load. He says, don't move from house to house. Just go to one house. Let that one person support you. Let them fully support you. Don't worry about that. And you just go do ministry. And what he's talking about is that that is a worthy house. So this is the thing. It's like, for example, for the Philippians, Paul wasn't saying, oh, man, Philippians, it's not right for you to financially support me while I'm working for while I'm ministering to the Corinthians. He didn't say that. He welcomed and encouraged their financial support. He didn't feel bad about taking money from the Philippians. You want to hear something about the Philippian church? In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about the Philippian church, and he says that their generosity uh, overflowed out of their deep poverty. The Philippian church was poor, 
And God took their money, Paul took their money, allowed them to support him while he ministered to the Corinthians. And you know, you want to know what Paul says? Paul just talks about all that, and he just says, man, God supplied every need. The reason that they were so generous was because God would bless them, God would care for them, God would supply every one of their needs. And, and they, they wanted the privilege of participating and supporting him. And so, um, so Jesus is just saying that there's going to be a blessing for people who support ministry. I think about 3 John, um, 3 John chapter 1, verse 5, um, th- uh, he just says this, um, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. You know, one of the things is that when we give to a church, when we give to missionaries, when we give to people in ministry, we're not primarily giving to them. We are giving to God. And he goes on and he just says, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Again, people ministering, making sure that there's no hindrance to the gospel, no questioning of motives. And he says, therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Here's the awesome thing. Um, there, there have been times that, and I currently do, I have some friends on the mission field, and I support them. I support them financially. One of the reasons I do it is I just think, you know, 100 bucks fills my car with gas, you know. But $100 in another country to somebody in need, it goes so far. And I think about the way that God has just blessed all of us in this country. And, and for us to be able to generously support people who are giving their lives to the gospel. Uh, in a sense, um, I minister in Zimbabwe. I minister in various places in the world because I help support people who are in those locations. And that's one of the things is that when you support a ministry, you are participating, you are sharing in the work of that ministry. It is an incredible blessing to be able to do that. Here's the third and final point this morning, is that a heart for the gospel is demonstrated by what motivates us to minister. And as we think about Paul, Paul didn't do things for what was in it for him. And for you and I, we shouldn't do things for what's in it for us. We should be people that are motivated by the pleasure of God, motivated by a desire to see people come to know the Lord and grow. So this is what it says here, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. You know, Paul cared so much about the gospel, he was willing to sacrifice his life for it. And for all of us, what drives you and what motivates you in ministry? Is it the pleasure of God? Is it work? Or is it what you get? You know, I think you find that out um, when you're ministering to people who don't appreciate you and don't love you and don't care about you. Do you want to quit doing it? (laughs) Do you think to yourself, all right, I'm out? Or are you willing to continue ministering to people regardless of how they treat you? Um, That's one of the things that you see here for the Apostle Paul. Um, What he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, 
He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul's motivated by his faithfulness to the Lord. He says, "Um, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4, he says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, for it is the Lord who judges me. And so Paul just, he's ministering, and he just says, I have a clear conscience, but just because I feel okay about things doesn't mean I'm okay. God knows. And so he's driven by desire to please the Lord. Look at verse 15. I have made no use of any of these rights. I am writing these, nor am I writing these things that any such provision should be secured for him. For I would rather die than to have anyone um, deprive me of my ground for boasting. Um, So Paul, everything he does is to please the Lord and to bless people. Now, I just want to throw something out there for everybody. That certainly should be true for anybody in ministry. But did you know that that is what God wants from every single person, no matter what they're doing? Have you thought about Colossians chapter 3, verse 12? It says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincere sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work, do work heartily as for the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know, pastors are supposed to do everything they do for the Lord. Missionaries are supposed to do everything they do for the Lord. If you are a plumber, you are supposed to do your plumbing for the Lord. If you, wherever you work, you are not to be motivated by your pay. You ever know people that it's like, yeah, the way they pay me, I'm not going to work hard. I'll work while they're watching, but aside from that, I'm going to go sit on the sidelines. No, Christians do everything for the Lord. And so that's the cool thing about this. None of this stuff is just about ministry. All of this stuff is about being a Christian. Well, great challenge. Let me pray for us today. Lord, I thank you for giving us your word God, I pray that as a church, we would never lose sight of how you've called us uh, to be and what you've called us to do. Lord, I ask that you would never allow um, personal difficulties or challenges to distract us from the things you've called us to do. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be people that are investing and supporting ministries. And Lord, that we would be generous um, as we do that, but not only with our resources, with our time, with our energy. God, I pray that you would help us as a church family to be about building the kingdom of God in your name. Amen.